Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast. I'm your host, Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady. Edible Alpha is a curated learning community whose goal is to accelerate the dissemination of the best practices for creating profitable food companies. This starts with understanding and implementing the right business model and preparing companies to raise the right kind of money at the right time. This information is what entrepreneurs need. It's also what lenders and investors need. This podcast series is one dimension of Edible Alpha. In it, we will be interviewing a wide range of stakeholders, including entrepreneurs, lenders, investors, and service providers. Each of these podcasts will showcase elements required to build and fund profitable food businesses. Yeah, so, hey, Jeff, thanks for coming down to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so why don't you start by talking about the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic and what you do there? Sure. Uh, the, the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic is a clinic of the University of Wisconsin's law school. Uh, we use second and third year law students to provide free legal services for startup businesses. Yeah, and you've worked with a lot of my the client companies that I've worked with, and I can say that it's been super helpful. Yeah, we, we get a lot of really good feedback, um, and you know we a significant amount of our work, I'll say you know ten to fifteen percent, sort of fluctuates with time, um, but about fifteen percent of of the work that we do is in the food and beverage industry. Okay, so regulatory is a big thing that people yeah. come to you or should come to you about. Um, let's talk about trademarks too. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, trademarks are a big deal. Um, they're a bigger deal than I think a lot of people realize. And one of the more interesting experiences that I had um, as an attorney, um, the very first brewery client I ever had, um, it was it was a it was kind of a weird experience where I had sort of targeted them from the beginning as a client that I wanted to have because they were a cool brewery and I liked their beer. And so I was like, I'm going to go out and get these people as my, as my clients. And I did. And I went out and I got them as my clients. Uh, and then maybe two or three years after I had started working with them, uh, one of the two founders of the brewery came up to me and he said, um, Jeff, I have to tell you um, that by far the most useful thing that you made us do was file trademark applications. Um, He's like, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but this business is all about selling our brand. Um, and he's 100% correct. Um, or rather, he heard me when I told him that the selling of beer is all about your brand. Um, you know, this is always a delicate topic to bring up with breweries in particular, but food producers in general and creative people even more generally than that, um, is, you know, that are, that are creating something for mass consumption mm -hmm. is probably the caveat to add to that, is that, um, you know, your baby looks like everybody else's mm -hmm. baby from people who don't know what babies look like. Right. Um, and most of the world doesn't know what a baby looks like. Um, and maybe this is a really bad metaphor that I'm 
getting you're wading abused. it into yeah. <laughs> it's probably like <laughs> yeah. too far down this right. metaphor metaphorical path mm-hmm. um but at the end of the day most consumers can't tell the difference between one amber beer and another amber beer um i think i i uh at one point looked at um, Line and Kugels and Capital, and between the two of them, they made more than 17 different amber beers. Oh, my of, goodness. Of, of, of whatever variety, Liney's Red, Liney's Amber, Capital Amber, mm-hmm. you know, Capital Lager, you know, Oktoberfest is an amber beer. So, right, you have all of these different amber beers, right? Um, and if you were to put them in front of an average consumer, they wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between them, right? So, you know, to some extent, you know, but brewers always want to tell you, you know, that it's all about the quality. All we care, you know, we make the highest quality beer. Well, everybody makes high quality beer. That's the, that's the reality is everybody makes high quality beer. If you don't make high quality beer, you're not going to be around very long. Um, and there are some exceptions to that too, because they do branding really well, um, but by and large, you have to have quality or you're not going to be around. So once you assume quality, how do you tell the difference between people's beer? You can't just say ours is higher quality than theirs. Um, and the way that you tell the difference between people's beers is through their brands, right? And the, the kinds of things that you want to identify with and the kinds of things you don't want to identify with. And, you know, your positioning on the shelf and your positioning in people's minds and the kinds of... Um, the kinds of things that you want your brewery to look like, right? And if you look at a package of, you know, New Glarus beer on the shelf next to a package of Carbon 4 beer on the mm-hmm. shelf, you see sort of the two extremes of beer branding. Um, and that's not to say New Glarus or Carbon 4s is any better than the other. That's just to say that, you know, if you're going to tell the difference between, between the beers, you're going to be looking at branding. Right, right. And I had a client, now this isn't beer, this was a food client who, um, who hadn't registered her trademark. And um, then she went, started leaving our geography here, mm-hmm. and she was making a um, packaged food product. And then it turned out that there was a coffee shop in a town somewhere in the United States that had the same name as her brand, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was a troll or trademark troll or whatever, but somebody found this, and this is like a baby food company, right? Yeah. And they, they get a letter from the attorney seeking damages for, on behalf of a coffee shop, you know? Yeah. It was like, oh, my God. It seems aggressive. You think? <laughs> well, and then, but then you can't, like, not do anything about it, right? So then she had to hire her attorney, and she needed to write a bunch of letters. And it, it was all because she had not registered her trademark. Yeah. Uh, and I think there are two things that are that are encapsulated there, one of which is trademark law, which I'm sure we'll get into here in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, the second of which is something I I work with clients and students with all the time. Um, and it's, it's the fact that you're only as right as you can afford to be, Yeah, you know, and you can have the law on your side. You could be the clear prevailing, uh, party. Uh, if the, if a dispute were to arise, you could have all of the facts and all of the law on your side. 
But the reality is if you can't afford to hire an attorney and do anything about it, then it doesn't matter if you're right, right? Um, so, you know, that kind of goes both ways where you're a trademark owner, you're an intellectual property owner, and you see somebody out there infringing you, um, you can have all the trademark rights in the world, but if you can't afford to hire an attorney and sue that person, then it doesn't really matter that you have that trademark. Um, now, it helps to have the trademark. Um, that can help to reduce the cost. Mm-hmm. Having, a tra- having a registered trademark can help reduce the cost of, uh, uh, of having to sue somebody. Um, but except in rare instances, you're not going to get your attorney's fees out of them. Um, right. So you need to be able to pay your attorney to, mm-hmm. to prosecute that. And y- you only get the money at the end of the trial. So, you know, that takes a lot of money to get to the end of the trial. And so that both presumes that you have the money to get to the end of the trial. And when you get to the end of the trial, there's the other side has money to give you. Um, If neither of those things are true, then it doesn't really matter what your rights are. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I mean, that's a fact of litigation. Um, It's a it's a particularly hard fact in trademark and intellectual property rights, though, because you're dealing with people's creative work mm-hmm. and people tie themselves up in their creative works. I mean, they're expressions of themselves, right? And so whether it's a recipe or a trademark or a, um, a patented device or whatever it might be, um, you know, an artwork or, you know, some sort of copyrighted work, whatever that is, um, People take it very personally, mm-hmm. uh, as they should, uh, but people take that very personally and it can be a really hard pill to swallow when you don't have the money to, to protect it. Right, right. So with the trademark registration, there's a whole process that happens, yeah. right? It doesn't just happen overnight. So. It certainly does not just no. happen overnight. Yeah. So um, you so describe that a little bit sure. for people who are listening. Sure. Um, so the trademark process is a relatively long one. Um, the good news, and I'll say this up front, the good news is it doesn't matter that it's a long process. You get trademark rights the moment you start using a word in conjunction with your goods and services. Um, so you can start using your trademark with whatever your goods and services are. And the second you do that, you have rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't really matter. And when you file for your registration, your registration rights go back to the day you first started using it. Um, so it doesn't really matter. That a whole, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Now, there's some, some reasons why it might matter, but it doesn't really matter a whole lot uh, that, the, that the registration process itself can sometimes take two years. Um, so the, the, the process starts by submitting an application to the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Um, that application says things like, what's your trademark? Uh, it says, who are you? Are you filing it in the name of your business or are you filing it personally? Um, and then it says, when did you first start using it and what did you first start using it on, right? So if you are, you know, New Glarus Brewing Company, for example, your trademark is New Glarus Brewing Company. You used it on beer and you first started using it on whatever day they first started selling beer in 1993, right? Um, so, uh, so that's your application. You submit the application and then you wait. 
Uh, you'll wait about four months or so at, at currently. Sometimes it's as little as three. Sometimes it's as they say they'll get to you in within six months. So the most it'll take is six months, and they'll give you um, they'll give you some sort of answer as to whether your registration as submitted is registrable or not. Um, the vast majority of applications are denied for some reason or another. Um, there might be some sort of procedural issue. You didn't attach a specification of use that was formatted appropriately. Um, you said that you were a corporation, but you filed as an LLC or, I mean, just something silly and procedural. Um, or, the, or the complication might be something more substantive. Um, the complication might be that your mark is too descriptive, right? Um, you, you know, you sell apples, you have an apple farm and you called your apple farm, Wisconsin apple farm. Mm -hmm. Um, that could be a problem. Uh, and the, the trademark office will say, nope, your, your trademark is too descriptive. You need to come up with, uh, you either need to come up with a reason why that's not a problem or you need to change your mark. Um, you know, or they might deny it because you're likely to be confused with somebody else's product out there. Um, you know, you create, uh, you know, you create apples that you sell under the trademark Apple, but Apple Computer uh, has a, a trademark for mark. it. Has yeah. a pretty big trademark, <laughs> uh. right? You, you, your your Apple logo is a picture of an apple with a bite taken out of it. Yeah, right? probably won't work. Um, yeah. Yeah, you might have some problems with that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the trademark office might say there's a likelihood of confusion there. Mm -hmm. um, those are sort of the two big substantive reasons mm -hmm. why a trademark might uh, might get denied. Um, one that's specific to food and beverage, which is really one of my favorite areas of the law, um, is geographic indications mm. um, and using the name of your place um, to indicate uh, as a trademark. Now, there's a difference between using it as a trademark and using it to, as an indication of uh, the place where it came from. Uh, so, for example, think of something like Idaho potatoes mm -hmm. um, and contrast that with how European protections work. So, you know, think of the the, wine, the French wine protection regimes um, and, you know, calling your wine champagne or Merlot or whatever, or cheese protection mm -hmm. regimes of Europe um, for things like brie, mm -hmm. um, Parmesan, Parmesan yep. in particular, um, Feta is an interesting mm -hmm. one. Um, and, you know, this gets into, I mean, this is, <laughs> I won't hijack the trademark conversation about this, but, and maybe we'll get to it later, but needless to say, there are some pretty big differences in how the United States treats those things and how the rest of, literally the rest of the world treats those things. So is that, so that the way the rest of the world, like around Parmesan, it has to be from that region of Italy, Right. Um, are we literally the only other the only country in the world that doesn't function that way? So this is a really interesting policy area. Um, we are in, of the of the parts of the world that have regional that, that, that have thought about this problem. Mm -hmm. um, two models have arisen. One is the European model, uh, which says that those designations are controlled regionally by a government-owned agency, right? So, um, 
So if you want to be a Parma ham, you have to be if from you wanna, Parma. If you want to be a Parma ham, you have right. to be from Parma, Italy, and it has to be registered mm-hmm. and certified by the Parma uh, group there, right? Um, in the United States, we have we, – we cover that under – under trademark law, and we create what are called certification marks. Hmm. Um, So for example, Idaho potatoes are a certification mark of the Idaho potato growers. Hmm. Um, So you have to be a member of the Idaho potato growers and you have to submit your potato to the Idaho potato growers for approval and then they allow you to use their registration mark of Idaho potatoes. So even if you are a potato grower in the state of Idaho, you cannot you cannot call your potatoes Idaho potatoes unless they have been certified by the Idaho potato growers. Um, so we have these two different protection regimes, um, and it's interesting how how policy around the world is shaping up. So a large so all of Europe sort of is under under their protection mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, Asia is – they hadn't really thought about this problem before. So their, uh, their intellectual property laws largely don't address the issues of geographical indications. Um, so as, as is very topical right now, the Trans-Pacific Partnership – contained a lot of rules that would require that the Asian countries adopt American-style geographic indication regimes. Oh, interesting, yeah. Now that we're getting rid of TPP, TPP, there is an interesting chance that Europe is going to sweep into Asia and Mm -hmm. convince them to adopt a more European-style protection Mm -hmm. regime. Um, Which is not going to be in our interest. Which, well, <laughs> depend, well, it depends on what I you mean, consider our interest uh, yeah, to be, right? Yeah. And so... And I that comes from me running, you know, I used to run a big cheese company. We made Gouda cheese. Like, we can't, you don't know... Don't tell that, the Dutch. Don't tell the Dutch. Well, they were... <laughs> they actually, we co-packed for a Dutch company, but the, that's the irony of the whole thing, right? But... That that we wouldn't be able to do that and label yeah. it Gouda here, yeah. right? If they under the European standard, yeah. So that's I mean that's sort that's of the interesting problem. thing here, right? Is that um, you know under the European system, it's an absolute right. There doesn't have to be any um, there doesn't have to be any consumer recognition of the value of the brand right. under the under the American regime. Um, it all falls back on trademark law, which mm-hmm. is a consumer protection law. So it looks at um, it looks at what the consumer uh, what the consumer knows or thinks about mm-hmm. that particular brand before assigning it rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the late seventies, there was a the the Europeans brought this to a head in the wine industry. And so there was sort of this big, big to do that happened in the in the late seventies, um, that created uh, sort of American recognition of some, but not all European uh, indications of origin. So, um, so what the U.S. said was, 
we'll recognize anything that hasn't become generic in the United States. Oh, okay. Um, so for us, things that were already generic like Merlot. were things like champagne, champagne or yeah. Merlot or Chardonnay, mm-hmm. right? So you can have an American Chardonnay and it drives the French crazy, mm-hmm. right? Now, they did a really interesting thing with champagne. Um, they actually... Because that was such a valuable mark to them, because it was so important that the world recognized champagne as being a very specific thing, mm-hmm. um, they actually undertook a very large marketing operation through the entirety of the 1980s to sort of take champagne out of the generic lexicon. Mm. Um, and so now, today, you won't see any American champagnes. You see American right. white sparkling wines, right. but you don't see American champagnes because they successfully retrieved it out of the generic use. Um, so that, that was really interesting. Um, so and it, and it worked really well for things that were on the list in the late 70s. Right. <laughs> um, it didn't work. What it didn't work so well for were things that weren't on that list. Right. Things like Gouda cheese, right, and right, feta, feta cheese, cheese and um, yeah, and Parmesan was on that list. Okay. Um, so you know, so it worked really well for some things, but mm-hmm. not as well for other things. So it creates these creates these interesting problems of American Gouda, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, the, the Dutch rightfully, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> would cringe at, um, you know, just like we would, just like we would cringe at the thought of German bourbon, right? Right. Um, that, you know, bourbon is a corn-based whiskey that comes out of Kentucky, right? That's right, right. aged in, it's aged in oak barrels. So, um, that's a very specific thing. And just mm-hmm. like, you know, just like the Americans would get upset if the Germans had, you know, German bourbon, mm-hmm. you know, they were rightly, I think that the, the Dutch would get upset with American Gouda. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that creates an interesting problem here. And when I've spoken to policymakers on it, they say, well, we create a lot of cheese here. And what would somebody call it if they didn't call it Gouda? That's what it is. Right. And I said, well, come up with a new name. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's what the Gouda people did. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know, I mean, cheddar started its life as a geographic indication mm-hmm. um, of a British style of, mm-hmm. of cheese. So come up with a new name. Right. And yeah. market your new market, your product uh, under that new name. You know, tired of Gouda? Right. Have our right. whatever. Well, and what's interesting, though, is when I, uh, you know, having run a fairly big company now in um, in in the world compared to small startup food is that um it's really hard to get that recognition of a product, yeah. right? So, so you're making Parmesan. Um, you really want to sell it as Parmesan, right? Yeah. It's, so this it's is not like an easy thing to switch four million pounds of Parmesan to, you know, I don't know, moon over the mountain cheese yeah. that just happens to be really good on Italian food. <laughs> I don't, yeah. You no, know? I, and, and I recognize that. I mean, keep in mind that. My position on this is heresy in the United States. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's, I get it. It's, it. It is, I am, personally, I am very pro-European model. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of really good things to like there. And I think that 
when you can get those designations created and you can get value recognized in that brand, it is extraordinarily powerful. Oh yeah, it is extraordinarily powerful. Yeah, the, in our a way trouble that will be... in, in a way that American in a way that the American system simply doesn't incorporate. And so, you know, to be able to to be able to create a champagne or a bourbon or a gouda or a feta um, is really extraordinarily valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so I, I, I would argue in, in favor of a more European style mm-hmm. system here. Um, well, recognizing you know, that that ship has sailed. Yeah, that's uh, well, And my no, view but, is considered heresy. Yeah, uh, well, but, you know, if we give it up to Asia, man, um, it, we may find ourselves in the dinghy, you know, with the ship, the bigger ship is going in another yeah. direction, in which case we're going to have no choice. I mean, I think people don't realize about. So we, you know, a lot of entrepreneurial food is around local and yeah, small yeah, and all yeah, of that. Yeah. But the it, coming from dairy, the, this is a global business, yeah. man. And all, what happens in Asia drives mm-hmm. milk prices all over, including right here in Wisconsin. So if we're going to give that, you know, say surrender the field, so to speak, because we just we don't like this trade agreement, well, we might find ourselves really really scrambling in the future. Yeah, there's going to be some pretty interesting side effects and consequences to come out of our rejection of of TPP if we do in fact truly end up right, rejecting, it, rejecting it, right? Like it, yeah. you know, the sort of the realist in me says that uh craft might uh, sneak in here somewhere and talk some sense Somebody, into Donald you Trump. Would, you would be like, you would think that <laughs> some, some people who are big, this is... Uh, there's yeah, a very there's large... We have our own large, very large corporate interests that... Totally. That, and the dairy the industry that, are huge. You know, in, in interestingly, I mean, this is the whole, you know, this was the whole thing against... You know, the creation of this agreement in the first place is that it was basically written by the large corporate interests. Right. But in fact, those large corporate interests are what have written those rules to be the way that they are here in the United States, Mm -hmm. such that if we don't have that, if we don't have the implementation of an American style, you know, geographic indication regime, you know, we could literally be the dinghy outside the cruise ship. Right, right? exactly. um, The whole world is heading in a different direction and we're like, hey, wait a minute, we set the rules except we're now the dinghy. And and this is a fight that we have literally been having since the late 1800s. Oh, yeah, I I get it. This fight has been going on a long, long time. Um, Right, and, over the designations, and, yeah. you know, we could end up losing this fight. Now, somebody like me doesn't see it as a loss. Right. Uh, somebody like me sees it as common sense prevailing, right. but... <laughs> Well, it would be interesting because in the dairy industry with cheese, there are these um, quotas, right? There are yeah. also quotas. So, so for Parmesan, there's just so much Parmesan you can buy every year under the quota, and mm-hmm. the quotas are allocated. Talk about a Byzantine ancient thing, right? Yeah. Um, to various companies who buy it. Um, but the, pr- you know, practically speaking, that's not enough Parmesan for what we use. You know what I mean? In because we use a lot of it in this country, so. We would really be scrambling. 
maybe we shouldn't put diamonds on everything. I know, right on pizza. <laughs> maybe right. if we, maybe if somebody in Wisconsin developed an alternative hard white cheese hard. that you could put on Italian food right. and market well, it as did. an alternative so to that really a, expensive Parmesan yeah, stuff. We have pizza uh, There might be cheese. some value in that. So there has been pizza cheese. That's a as terrible an example. Trade. I mean, come I mean, on. I know. That's a terrible, it's terrible. Name. I come get up it. with a fancy name. I get it. You know. The other thing about about big volume companies is that they're terrible at at. Yeah, they're terrible at branding. Anyway, um, so trademark is <laughs> we we we, we, we kind of got a little, a little yeah, bit, but no, but yeah, but no, I I do think though what you're getting at though is that for these smaller companies to get differentiation that's defensible, right? Defensible yeah. differentiation. No, that's absolutely right. That Some of that is related to regional differences. And consumers are going there because they understand that from Europe, right? And, they, you know, some consumers understand that Parma hams have to be from Parma and they want their cheese to, they want to know where their cheese comes from, right? And so having a regional, um, regionality to a small food or beer is not, trivial as a as a point of differentiation. No, I think it's extraordinarily important. And, and I mean, I, I would look at this as the reason why I support uh, a, a European style system. But even more generally, just thinking about it from I'm a beer producer in Wisconsin or I'm a cheese producer in Wisconsin in particular, that so much of the market in the craft brewing industry, in the cheese industry, in food in particular is around the hyper local. Mm -hmm. And being able to and being able to show your local bona fides mm -hmm. um, is a really important way of distinguishing, hey, my cheese is better than their cheese, if for no other reason than it was made by somebody in your own community. Right. You know, it, let, let's and assume quality and it all tastes the same. This this cheese uses milk that comes from my farm and the neighboring farms, mm -hmm. and it's made by the people who are on those farms, mm -hmm. right? And you know, I'll just you know, I'll I'll kick the dead horse one more time. You know, that's all that Parmesan is saying mm -hmm. too, yeah. right? And so you know, to be able to go out into the world and to say my stuff comes from this place, mm -hmm. right? The, this idea of terroir, mm -hmm. you know, um, as food people, we all know what terroir is. Um, but, it, you know, to be able to say that, that my food comes from this place is the ultimate form of distinction, mm -hmm. right? Because no other food can come from that place. Right. 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 And so it, it doesn't matter that the, that some producer in, you know, California is creating a cheese that is similar to yours. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you can always say, you know what? Mine comes from here and the people here are better than the people there mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Right. And, you or know, the, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. No. So and, and that creates real value. Mm -hmm. And people are starting to recognize that value. Americans mm -hmm. are starting to recognize that value and they pay a very large premium mm -hmm. for that value. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and so when thinking about who you are and your brand um, from the beginning, you have to, you know, you have to think, you know, does it matter where I come from? Should it matter where mm -hmm. I come from? Uh, and incorporate that into, into your branding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for food and booze. Mm -hmm. uh, I had an attorney tell me once that um, he, he gave the example of Dove Soap and said, Dove Soap to me is a great brand because 
It is evocative of creamy white soap, but it isn't creamy white soap, right? And sure. I thought that was like, oh yeah, that now I get I get yeah. this idea. Yeah, so this gets to so so this is where it gets really hard, right? And um because this gets at a really, really neat distinction between um, what makes a good trademark, mm-hmm. right? And we talk about this sort of it, – for the for lawyers, we talk about what's called a spectrum of distinctiveness. Um, and, you know, we talk uh, – you know, at one end, you have things that are generic. You're going to call your apple an apple, right? Everybody knows what an apple is. An apple is a defined thing. If you choose to call your apple an apple, you can't prevent other people from calling their apples apples, Right? On the other end of that, you have on the other end of our spectrum, of our distinctiveness spectrum, um, you have uh, Exxon for gasoline, right? Exxon doesn't mean anything. That word has no meaning Mm -hmm. in the English language. In fact, it was a made-up word by the people that created Exxon gas, right? So we call that fanciful, right? It's a word that's just made up, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, and then everything else sort of falls somewhere in between, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have, so after generic, we have descriptive. Mm -hmm. So something that is descriptive of a characteristic or quality um, of the good or service, right? So this would be, um, you know, Madison Tasty Reds for your apple, Mm -hmm. right? That you... It, it describes where it comes from and a good or or characteristic of, or a characteristic or quality of the good, right? Tasty and red, right? So that would be a descriptive mark, right? Um, after that, we have suggestive. Now, suggestive requires sort of that imaginative leap between the from the good to the the trademark, right? So sort of the um, the the definitional one that we use here is uh, legs pantyhose, if you're mm-hmm. familiar with that, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, legs doesn't mean pantyhose, right? right? But it's evocative of right, pantyhose, right? right? right. Um, and, then, and then you have arbitrary, right, which is using a word that has absolutely no connection to the Moon good over the certain, mountain cheese. Right, moon yeah. over the mountain cheese or, mm-hmm. you know, apple for computers, mm-hmm. right? It's a word that has no connection to the good mm-hmm. or service. Um, so this is, in, in, in the U.S., um, this is all brought back to consumer perception, right? Trademark law at its heart. Uh, is a consumer protection law, mm-hmm. right? It's con- it wants to make sure that when people see a mark, a trademark, a logo, whatever, um, that's attached to a good or a service, that they recognize that word as indicating the source or origin of that good or service, mm-hmm. right? And they and they allow the first person to use that word to indicate its source or origin to have superior rights over everybody else mm-hmm. um, as to that word for those goods or services, right? So it's why we can have Delta faucets and Delta uh, and, and Delta um, airlines mm-hmm. is because they're the same word, but they're, but nobody would confuse 
you know, the maker of airlines with, or the, the provider of an airline service with the maker of faucets, mm-hmm. right? From a distinctiveness perspective, so that's a likelihood of confusion perspective, but from a distinctiveness perspective, what that means is that when people see a word connected to those goods or services, they're actually using that word to know who the maker is and not just thinking of the good or service mm-hmm. itself, mm-hmm. right? So people aren't being confused as to, are you talking about the thing or are you talking about the maker of that thing, right? And that comes down to, um, you know, we, we have this other phrase, you know, removing a word from the lexicon, so to speak. So, you know, we don't want people to use generic or descriptive marks because when one person gains trademark rights, that necessarily means nobody else can use that mm-hmm. word. And if we say nobody else can call their apples tasty red, right? that's a problem. People need to be able to call their, people need to be able to describe their own apples. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, so we don't allow people to use generic or descriptive marks. Um, and there are some, there's some further nuance on the descriptive piece of that, but by and large, we don't allow people to use generic and descriptive. We encourage people to use suggestive, you Mm -hmm. know, dove for their, for their soap. Rather than, you know, creamy rather than creamy, creamy and lathery. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know? right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So um, anything else about trademarks you think people need to know? Um, yeah, so the other piece of that is likelihood of confusion. Um, and that gets into whether your mark is likely to be confused with somebody else's mm-hmm. that is out there. Um, and there's a whole lot of factors that go into that. Um, and depending on who's looking at that issue depends on what factors you use. Um, but those factors look at things like, are the two marks the same? You know, are the logos and the words the same? Are the goods and services that they protect the same? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the location of the use of those goods mm-hmm. and services, right? Um, and here's where being registered has a real impact. Mm -hmm. So as I said earlier, you don't have to be registered in order to have trademark rights, but there are some benefits to registration. Um, One of the biggest benefits to registration is a presumed national use. Um, So as soon as you have a trademark that's registered with the USPTO, you can enforce that trademark nationwide. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a registered trademark, if you are just relying on what we call common law rights, then you are limited only to those places where you can show that consumers know who you are, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't mean you have to be selling in those places, but you do have to be able to show that there are consumers there that know who you are, right? right? Um, So, you know, going back to, you know, um, so if you think about, I'll use beer as an example, um, if you have a beer in Wisconsin and there's a beer in California and they're both called the same thing and mm-hmm. neither of them have registered marks, then both of them can prevent the other from entering their own state. Mm-hmm. If one of them has a federal trademark, then they might be able to, if not keep the other company from adopting their mark at all in the first place, mm-hmm. they might be able to at least keep that company from expanding. Um, so it's one way that... You can sort of corner people into markets, and it's a, it's a way to sort of think strategically about 
how you want to grow and, mm-hmm. and how you want to expand your brand. Mm-hmm. But trademarks are, are really effective and, and really powerful for um, protecting your goods and services. Right, right. Cool. Is there anything else you can think of? I'm sure there's more. Well, we've but been we'll talking long enough. I don't. I'm not sure. I'm sure there is more. If somebody sure came and more. asked the question, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure it would send me down some other path. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, well, there'll be that's opportunities. That's a pretty high level. Yeah. Well, there'll be other opportunities for deep diving into into um, various areas related to food. But this has been terrific. Thanks for coming. And Absolutely. Yeah. And I look forward to more work. Yeah. Me yeah. too. Cool. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Edible Alpha podcast. If you like what you heard, rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Visit edible-alpha.org for more resources about the best practices in making money in food.